Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the Louise Lasser movies of the VHS era. I mentioned Louise Lasser because tonight we are talking about 1987's Blood Rage, um, which is arguably the greatest showcase for an actress of all time. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, as of this broadcast, you can find 1987's Blood Rage on YouTube as an edited version. Why would you bother? Uh, to be unedited for free or for <laughs> on Amazon for $3, which why? Why would you do that when it's on Tubi? So I should say this up front that like I... Th- I don't know if this movie is just huge in the VHS community or if this is like crossed over into the mainstream and tons of people know this movie. I've never heard of this shit in my life until you brought it up to me. All right. So uh, I'll just acknowledge then that this is a huge movie in the VHS community. The tape has gotten really expensive. I don't know when that happened exactly. Like I first saw this movie um, when I was in high school and I bought the tape from a video store for like 50 cents and somewhere between then and now the tape ballooned from being like worthless and no one paid any attention to this movie to being like a $150, $200 tape that people obsess over and have like blood rage parties. And it's a whole cultural phenomenon. And I'm just, it, does that surprise you that that's happened to this movie? A little, but I'm also surprised I had not heard of this movie previously. I I mean, I know neither of us are really like slasher connoisseurs per se, but I feel like this should get more recognition as a slasher film from the 80s that you just, again, you just don't hear about it as a, as a regular normal ass person like me. You, you just don't really get exposed to this film. I think that this film has the same kind of exposure as Sleepaway Camp, and I think what keeps both of them from crossing fully over into the mainstream is that they're fucking weird, (laughs) right? They're just weird movies, regardless of whether you find them funny or horrifying or boring or whatever, they're weird. And I, I think they're probably too weird to be popular, like beyond the freak community. Here's the difference. I've heard of Sleepaway Camp and it's like bajillion sequels. I had never seen this before in my life. Like the box art, any of it, ever. I see Sleepaway Camp on streaming apps. This I have just had never seen, but until I actually had to look for it. I think part of the reason for that is this movie was made, I think, in 83 or 84, and it was shelved for like three or four years. And then when they finally released it in 1987, it was straight to video, and I don't think it was noticed at all. Like, I know when I had my original copy, nobody knew what this movie was. There wasn't a Instagram community or anything at that point. But now... Now the movie has ballooned, and I think it's just that it took people that long to kind of discover it and for it to reach enough people. Let's very briefly touch on the differences between the two versions. It's very simple. One was syndicated for television and has almost all of its gore cut. Perhaps that is the version people saw first primarily and why this movie totally fell into obscurity. Maybe, but... 
I also think this movie requires a certain, you almost have to watch it ironically, right? As much as I hate that ironic shit, the the appeal of this movie is an ironic appeal and i think that 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 ethos only developed later right like irony became a a aspect of popular culture in the 90s and then um i guess faded away in the 2010s or so but anyway my point is then the 1980s i don't know if people were ready to to uh, meet this movie where it needed to be met. <laughs> so let's, going back to Louise Lasser for a moment, um, she plays the mother of a set of twins for anyone who has not seen this. And I don't think we should bother talking about much of the plot. I do think everyone's seen this, but let's just give enough info up front. So Louise Lasser is the mother of twin boys one of whom is a psychopathic killer and the other one of whom is innocent. And it, it we'll talk about which one's which in a little while. But do you agree that she just makes this movie? Not really. <laughs> no? She no, doesn't I, endlessly fascinate you? No. You know, I normally agree with you when it comes to Bizarro Mothers, but in this case, I, I don't feel like it's her performance that carries this film. N not to say that it's bad or even un unmemorable but uh you you didn't even you didn't find it like utterly bizarre oh it's strange but i don't know if that's really the necessarily the defining characteristic of this film i mean maybe it's partly like my my attraction to these types of characters like the insane maternal figure but i also really like Louise Lasser's I can't tell how, how to I don't even know how to talk about her I think this is her right I don't think this is that much of a performance from all everything I've read and know about her this is her and so I just imagine her walking on set every day like totally spaced out of her mind it, it breaking into wild emotions at every moment and just being like, just tell me where to go. Where do I go next? Like, what do I say? And, and that's how I imagine this being made. And so I almost think of it as like, it's a movie and then it's a Louise Lasser documentary, like that, crammed together. That makes this sound pretty exploitative for the wrong reasons. I mean, I so she most famously was um, one of the hosts in the original season of Saturday Night Live. And supposedly she was so out of her mind on whatever for that performance that um, the show just fell apart that and, and, you know, she was a debacle. She was banned from ever coming back on the show. Like it was a nightmare scenario. And it was just because she was that like messed up, I guess, in her personal life. I don't know if it was mental illness or drugs or alcohol or a combination of all of those. Um, but I think she was a really wacky person. Not to throw shade at SNL, but I don't think it's that hard necessarily to get banned from it. No, I just I, I think it's one of the one of the um, events that suggests she was having some problems. If you don't know, she was um, Woody Allen's second wife. 
Oh, that explains yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine, like, this is the type of person I would imagine Woody Allen with. The Woody Allen of, like, the 60s, right? <laughs> Not necessarily the Woody Allen now who, like, embraces creepy. Oh, he always embraced creepy age differences. I don't know. It, <laughs> it, the times caught up with him. Um. Uh, but uh, I find Louise Lasser endlessly fascinating. I mentioned that she she seems like the the neuroses she would carry is someone that would be like a Woody Allen survivor. Have you her seen protective of her children? <laughs> have you seen her in anything else? Uh, if I have, I don't remember her. I don't know if you'd remember her from this, but she's one of the the neighbors, the friends of the mother in Requiem for a Dream. No, I'm not going to remember that shit. It's uh, it's what a lot of people remember her face from, although she really doesn't have many lines or anything in the movie. No. Uh, it's, I, th this film is a point of contention for Luke and I. I. I think it fucking sucks, and he thinks it's brilliant. It's, it's terrible. We don't need to get into that. We're not here for that. This You think this movie's terrible? No, no. Uh, oh. Requiem for a dream. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, uh, we won't devote an episode to Record for a Dream. But God. all right, so the son, the sons are both played by Mark Soper or Sopper, um, who he's been in eighteen movies, mostly like small roles. What do you think of his performance? It's it's all right. Um, it... All right, look, this is not a serious film. Okay, it, it's not calling for serious performances. And within that vein, I think he does just fine. Uh, he might not have the best one-liner delivery, but for what this film be, it is very suitable. He did not seem out of place. And I can totally tell the brothers apart just by like his expression and posture, which I think is, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's easy to do, right? So that... No. On that, on that front, I think it makes it a little easier because I think he has like a different haircut for both characters. His hair is definitely styled differently, um, but his behavior is also very different. Even his line delivery is different. Yeah. Is there anyone else who's who we need to talk about in this movie? As far as performances, oh man, everyone else is just cannon fodder. Uh, all right, so but I want to go back to something you said. So you said this is not a serious film. No. How much how much of it do you think was meant to be comedic and how much do you think was meant to be like a horror film? It's hard to know cuz the writer and director really didn't do much else. There are a lot of drive-in theatrical horror films that have in like aura of brevity to certain aspects of their filmmaking right like the gore might be able to be a little bit light like look at the uh friday the 13th films where you have like ridiculous fucking death scenes in the middle of this uh child killer haunting teenagers in their dreams uh i, I would say it's probably just like along the same vein as those films although perhaps the dials are turned very differently see that's what i'm kind of what i'm getting at with louise lasser is I think that if she weren't there and she didn't do the performance the way she does it, I think it just would be one of those movies. It would just be like a goofy slasher movie. I just think she adds a lot, a lot of humor, a lot of um, 
intrigue. You might be right, but this is this is a slasher film that delivers on what slasher movie audiences really want, which is absurd amounts of violence, a body count, and nudity. Oh well, I am the anomaly because I'm totally there for the mother. <laughs> the crazy mother. But, but as someone who hasn't watched this film before, right? Those were the things that immediately jumped out. Like this this is a slasher that has all of the slasher things in it. It's it doesn't skimp on anything. Well, let's talk about a few more bits of trivia and then we'll play the trailer. One is, did you recognize the guy at the very beginning in the bathroom who was selling condoms? No. <laughs> so, he is played by Ted Raimi. This was the debut of Ted Raimi, Sam Raimi's brother, who, you know, went on to be an actor in his own right. But this was his first movie. So this is this is a great first movie like to to be in. I I mean, he probably didn't think that at the time with how this was received. But in retrospect, there are so many other actors like great accomplished uh, people who have been in way worse first appearances than this. No, I think I think he's actually really funny in the role. Like he he opens up his jacket and like he has condoms there. Like he's he's selling them illicitly in the bathroom. I thought I thought it was funny. I will say I did really give this character way too much thought. Like thinking about this this man and the kind of life he leads. Like this is what he does for a living. He he stands in bathrooms and drive-throughs and sells condoms before showtime. Uh-huh. You gotta wonder, like, does this guy travel from like drive through the drive through? Because this was, um, assume uh, assume anyway that this was the period of time where their drive throughs were everywhere for the most part. So you could like have a route, a condom delivery route for your drive-ins to know which bathrooms to loiter in at what times to maximize your value. I thought I thought it was really funny, but I also imagined he was like a high school student or something. Like he was just doing this for some extra bucks. I didn't imagine him as a professional. Are you kidding? He had the whole getup, man. He had he had, he had displays in his jacket. You tell me he wasn't professional? I don't know. It re- kind of reminds me of the guy in the blob that opens the trunk and has the bar set up back there. True. That's kind of what it makes me think of. Okay. But anyway, speaking of the drive-in, so this this drive-in was in New Jersey, but the rest of the movie is filmed in Jacksonville, Florida, at the University of North Florida. And as far as I know, um, I think I, I heard recently that the apartment complex is still there. Like, you can go visit it. And knowing Florida's property management, it's probably the exact same apartments in the exact same condition. I was thinking about that. I was like, I wonder if the same carpet would be there. Likely. The only thing that changes the the fucking sign out front. They probably had to change the name of the apartments. Yeah, but no, it, you can... I don't know if you could tell. I, I think it definitely looks like Florida, especially when they're on the nature trail. For sure, yeah. I mean, not just Florida, but like the southeast in general, you can see that kind of vegetation. Yeah. But the final thing I want to talk about is the music. So the music was composed by uh, Richard Einhorn, who is like a big deal. 
So he's done some really cool horror movies. In 1977, he did Shockwaves, the underwater Nazi movie. I am uh, very familiar. He did Don't Go in the House, The Prowler, um, After Blood Rage. He did he did a bunch of odd things like TV documentaries and stuff. But he also he helped work on Tales from the Dark Side, the TV series. Um he wrote music for uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc, the, the Briar film, um, for K-19, The Widowmaker. So anyway, he's probably the most successful person in the cast and the crew. What do you think of the music? Was there any music outside of the absolutely lit opener? Yeah, there's music throughout. It's mostly subtle. Yeah, okay. I think the opening theme, which is also used over the credits, is awesome. And it's I think it's also used in certain parts of the film. That that song is amazing. That is like great 80s synthesizer rock out bullshit. Amazing. I, I genuinely do not remember anything else for the soundtrack. Do you think we hear that song in the trailer? Yes. All right, so let's play the trailer and we'll give people a taste of what it sounds like. Looks like you're going to get a chance to meet the rest of the family. My psychotic brother just escaped. I just don't want to spoil things. Anybody else need more turkey? No, I'm pretty good, thanks. I don't like to talk about my brother. He gives me nightmares. I mean, this Thanksgiving. You know, somebody ought to tell him to get inside. Nobody should be out with my brother around. He looked exactly like Terry, except he had this really wild, crazed look in his eyes. There's somebody after me, and he's chasing me, and he's trying to hurt me. real sweetheart now that a real sweetheart it's not cranberry sauce Artie. so we've got to talk about the opening scene at the drive-in because i think you're under selling how strange this movie is so we we see louise lasser who is how old do you think she is in this movie uh well she definitely looks like she hasn't changed uh, aged a day between this <laughs> opening scene and the eventual time jump yeah but in this scene how old do you think she is oh gosh like 40 maybe she looks like a mom all right she looks like a mom and she has her kids in the back seat and the guy in the driver's seat does not look like a dad and no <laughs> how would you describe him probably trying to ignore the kids as best he can yeah, he makes that pretty clear. But so this is a weird situation, right? And they think the kids are asleep. There's They're sleeping in the back with a rifle. Are they? Oh, no. Yeah, there's a rifle that's like laying sort of between them. Are you sure it's not like a BB gun or something? I mean, they're I'm, kids. I mean, maybe, but we can't tell. It just it looks like a gun. And there's also a hatchet, right? Or no, they find the hatchet someplace else. Um, but the, the one kid, you know, they wake up and the one kid says, mom's at it again. Let's get out of here. And so they crawl out and find an ax in the back of someone's truck. And the one, the one twin uses it to, to ax somebody in the face, this guy in the face through a car window. And then he frames his brother for it. Did you, did you mention that the victim was fucking in the backseat of the car no i didn't even include that that is very important to note 
this this man is doing the missionary. He's the same guy that we see buy condoms in the beginning. He's fucking this girl in the back seat and then looks up to the driver's uh, the passenger window to see this kid watching him <laughs> only to get fucking hatcheted in the face when he tells the kid to, to buzz off. Um, it, it, from this very first gore scene, you, you know you're in for some good special effects because they actually bother to like put like a hatchet mark right over his fucking eyeball. Like that is some dedicated gore that goes beyond just like slapping some red on someone and calling it a day. I think the special effects look good and maybe I'm just a sick person, but they're not what stands out to me. What stands out to me is stuff like the little kids are sleeping with a rifle in the back seat. They easily have access to a hatchet and the one manages to to uh, frame his twin brother by rubbing blood on his face and screaming. And the whole time you've got Louise Lasser who looks crazy as fuck acting like a teenager, even though she's a mom and having no idea how to handle this situation. I just think it's bizarre. There are two single moms in this film and they both have one other thing in common. They're trying to find rich fathers to help (laughs) their children. Yeah, that's so true. In Louise's case, I mean, we're, we're not using her character's name, right? I don't even know what it is. All right, then. Uh, <laughs> we're, Louise is out here just trying to find anybody. Is this really any weirder to start than other things we've seen? I think what's weird about it is it's hard to put my finger on. I think it's the tone. I think it's the tone of the movie because it's not quite like... I don't know, Evil Dead or uh, Blood Diner Wacky, right? It's not quite there. It's got elements of like 70s exploitation movies, like the crazy mom and the evil twin. Like those are very 70s tropes. And so there are moments where it feels like, especially the gore scenes, it feels like sleazy exploitation. And then it's got some slasher elements. But instead of these things clashing they seem to just meld into something totally unique. Like, I don't think there's any other movie like this one. Thinking about it, a lot of the plot points that involve the mom are probably the what we would call the most uh, traumatic plot points of what happens to any character in the film. Yeah. And those bits of trauma do have a very different feel than the rest of the film, especially the ending, which we will definitely get to. You know, we probably should have mentioned this earlier. If you have not seen this film, I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably have. But if you haven't, you should just stop this right now and, and go watch it. It's worth your time. Yes, for sure. This is Thanksgiving. Go go watch a family get murdered and torn apart. I mean, I think this. Uh, I think this movie is a part of many people's Thanksgiving traditions now. But maybe I'm overestimating it, and there are more Lelands than I know. Uh, The main reason I wanted to do this movie, by the way, is not because there's anything left to say about it. It's just I want to capture the reaction of someone who's seeing it for the first time. Because I've never been able to talk to someone who's never seen this movie before. 
so yeah, I just I think that the reason those scenes and plot elements are so tonally different is because a Louise Lasser is actually putting in it's a great performance. It's a melodramatic over the top performance, but I think it's great. I'm not so sure it fits with the movie, but it's great. But a lot of it feels true to me, too. Even if I didn't know that Louise Lasser was like kind of fucked up in real life, I think you can see it. I think she looks fucked up. And as a result, those scenes do have more of an exploitation feel. I think they're more unnerving if you really think about them. Like some of the things that happen are psychologically disturbing. And yet it's so wacky and melodramatic that I can't how I can't take it seriously. It's just a very odd feeling to have when you're watching a movie. And the only movie I think to compare it to is Sleepaway Camp. To a lesser extent, Elves is like this. It not to say this is as wacky as Elves. I don't think it is, but they have similar tonal oddities. So we jump forward 10 years. And we've got the two twins, Todd, who is the innocent one who got framed, and he has been in a mental hospital for all of this time. And then his brother, Terry, who is actually the guilty one, but he has been out living a normal life. And he lives with the mom, and he has a group of friends and a girlfriend, and he's in college. What did you think of the scene where Louise goes to visit Todd in the hospital? And she brings in pumpkin pie. I don't really care about the pumpkin pie. You know, that's just what a loving mother does to their, to any son committed to a mental institution. Bring, brings them homemade dessert. But the thing that really gets me about the hospital is that we're introduced to a psychologist. A psychologist that has the only inner monologue <laughs> slash narration of the entire film. Which would naturally lead one to believe that this is going to be a very pivotal character in the next hour and 20 minutes. That is not what happens. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have no idea why she has a voiceover. It, it makes me wonder how much of this buoy was improvised on the spot. Like maybe this doctor was supposed to be around for longer and then for whatever reason filming scheduling whatever that just didn't happen that way well if this contributes to your theory the original actress who was supposed to play this part dropped out at the last minute and one of the producers had to step in to play it wow maybe that is exactly what happened then because <laughs> the main girl or actress of this film sorry girl i have to check my male privilege this woman who this actress who is the main character that we can empathize with um it's just like another regular teenager and the fact that she is a survivor is very bizarre because every single other teenager doesn't make it they are all very cruelly and indiscriminately murdered in a variety of ways. <laughs> Thinking about it, it is really cruel and indiscriminate, and yet it's not portrayed seriously. <laughs> They're not moms. I don't care, says Luke. 
Well, the mom, Louise Lasser, brought the pumpkin pie and the the doctor is trying to explain to her that Todd has just regained his memory and remembers that he's innocent and that Terry is the real one. And she is not willing to accept this. <laughs> what, what did you think of her reaction? Uh, I actually seriously considered for just a brief moment just now if there was any logic behind Louise's thinking. And then I immediately came to the conclusion that was fucking bumpkiss. Like, there's absolutely no reason to consider this woman's decision-making on any level as rational. No, I don't think she's rational at all. Clearly, for whatever reason, she has chosen a favorite child. And I don't know if this had happened before the drive-in incident or during the hospitalization, but it is very apparent, probably after this scene, that not Todd <laughs> is the favorite. What's the other one's name? Harry. Harry. So I was just thinking murder twin. <laughs> murder twin is clearly the favorite for Louise. Well, when the doctor suggests doing hypnosis, I think, she yells, my children are not guinea pigs. Very enraged. God, she did say that. Oh. Right. And then, and then we see Todd start to break down. And he starts to mush up the pumpkin pie in his hands. And then he dramatically throws it on the wall and gets down on his knees. And he's screaming. Like, this is after school special melodrama at its finest. This is why I love this movie. Scenes like this. <laughs> I missed he threw it at the wall. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not just her that's bought into this fantasy, though, because I think Terry is also really attached or possessive of her. Like when he finds out that she's engaged to her boyfriend he is not happy. In fact, that's what I'm not sure if it's that 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 kicks off his murder spree or if it's his brother getting out like his brother runs away from the insane asylum. And do you think that he starts killing people because of that or because his mother got engaged? My reading was that he used Todd as an alibi to commit his first murder. For whatever reason, that doesn't matter. And then we're led to believe that between Todd's institutionalization and the modern day, that he's been a perfect angel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But with Todd being on the loose, Murder Twin now has an excuse, an, another alibi to start committing more murders. And I don't think that his mother's relationship really helped uh, try to curb those feelings at all. I definitely think that's a possible reading, but I also noticed that in, in the original scene in the drive-in, he dis Terry decides to kill someone once his mom starts making out with her boyfriend. And she, and he says, Oh, mom's at it again. And that's right before he goes and kills someone. And then when he starts killing people again, it's right after he's found out that they're engaged. 
but it's also right after he finds out his brothers escaped. So it's hard to know what the true cause is. But I do think there's some possessiveness where he does not like the idea of someone being with his mom. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed something along those lines. He is sex adverse in general for the vast majority of the script. He uh, really a lot of the men are, which is kind of a refreshing. <laughs> it's odd. It is odd. That is an odd part of the film. You see a lot of sexually a lot of sexual like um like blue balls coming from all the girlfriends because their do their boyfriends would rather play video games or watch television. Or I guess in the uh, murder twins case, he's actively avoiding it where everyone else just seems to be generally distracted or not as interested as they would appear to be. It seems pretty prophetic because now this is like a trope, right? Like the the guy who's too into his video games and doesn't even notice his girlfriend coming on to him. But here we have it in the 80s. In 1984, that's, that's pretty prophetic. Uh, one more thing about the scene where Terry finds out that his mom is engaged over Thanksgiving dinner. He does a toast. Do you remember the toast? I remember he raised a glass of milk. That, <laughs> that's what I remember. The toast is just like congratulations. But he's toasting with milk, which I think is supposed to be our first indication that he doesn't drink which it becomes like a, a plot point, I guess. Why do you think he doesn't drink? He might seem normal at first glance, but even before you realize he's, you know, a murderous psychopath, well, I mean, I guess you kind of know because you saw him fucking literally axe someone in the face at a drive-in. But if you were to ignore that, right? Like, say so you blacked out the first five minutes of this film and picked it up. Um, he seems like a normal, you know, white guy adult playing teenager at first but you can start to see like the seams kind of fraying here like for thanksgiving dinner he's wearing a collared shirt and a tie but the collar has popped up oh well it's very 80s is that an 80s thing that's an 80s thing oh my god yeah. i thought that was a sign of mental illness yo but while we're on the topic of clothing let's talk about what louise is wearing to this thanksgiving dinner <laughs> Well, what about it? She's wearing a very low-cut top with a push-up bra. And it feels like she's trying very hard to please... What is this? Property manager fiancé? What is his name? <laughs> what Brad. Brad? He's such a Brad. He is a Brad. He's, it feels like she's either really trying to please Brad or maybe she's like trying like i don't know if she's trying to like appeal to his base animal nature or if this is something like brad's like you should wear this tonight and she's like yes anything you want please don't leave me i think it's like this is one of the only things that she clings to is like her appearance i mean her life kind of sucks right her her adult son lives with her while her other son is institutionalized for murdering somebody and she's the only guys she seems to be able to get with are like people who 
molest her at the drive-in. So, like, I don't think she has a very happy life. And I think for her, it's like one of the only... She lives in this apartment complex. She doesn't have money. But what she can do is try to look pretty. Yo, do you think she's with Brad for free rent? He's the property manager. I bet. I'm sure she gets free rent. Maybe that's the implication. Speaking of Brad, Louise wants the dinner to go perfectly for Brad. And when she finds out, she gets a phone call that the brother has escaped. And she calls Terry into the kitchen. And she's like, your brother's escaped, but don't tell anyone. Like, I want this to be the perfect dinner. You know, Brad is here. But then when Terry goes out and sits down, the first thing he says is, my psychotic brother escaped. And he says it very cheerfully. What do you, what did you think his motivation was in that scene? Maybe he's trying to upset his mother because he did witness, you know, Brad and her making out in the bedroom. I think that's it. I think he's and angry at her. She's and so, probably the one person he would never harm, ever. Yeah. Although I don't really see any indications that he is such a loving son that she imagines him to be. Do we ever actually see him like doing anything for her? No, we never really see him get the chance to be a human being. This is a pretty one-sided film. So she could just be delusional. You think? Maybe. Maybe? Just a little? (laughs) So when the psychiatrist finds out that Todd has escaped, she and her assistant show up at the apartment to like hunt him down i don't the assistant has a gun what did you think of this this response the official response to todd's escape if i didn't live in florida i would say this is so florida but even florida doesn't have this happen (laughs) (laughs) the police don't even come right no the police are mentioned one time in the second half of the film, and they never get called. And how many people die? Probably like 10, right? Everybody except for <laughs> the main heroine slash victim, an infant. Oh, no, three people. The little girl with the cat survives because she's uh, yeah. not to open the door. <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely want to talk about her, but we'll get there. So one thing I couldn't figure out about this is if this doctor sincerely believes that Todd is innocent, that he never killed anyone, why are they out there with the gun, like, so worried about him? I feel like the original script would uh, shed light on that. <laughs> Except you think uh, so? Her character was cut short. Oh, okay. All right. So, the, so you're sticking with that theory, then, that she was a much bigger part of the movie. Yeah, that that would be my theory. Because otherwise, why would they set her up so hard? This isn't the kind of film that would try to do a switcheroo in like the first 20 minutes on you. I mean, I know this film is has a lot of non-traditional moving parts to it. That seems that kind of a meta choice seems really early for this kind of film for when this was for when this came out. So, she doesn't survive very long. What do you think of her death? You know, she's not even the second death of the film. First, it's Brad. Brad gets taken out first. Yeah. So you want to talk about Brad's death? 
this this is really the second defining moment of the film where you realize this film is is maybe not taking itself super seriously. Uh, Brad has decided that he is going to use his um, property manager connections to try to find Todd, who's somehow wandering around on his property. Yeah, he's he tells he tells Louise he's like, "Don't worry, I'm gonna be here with you. I'm gonna support you all through this." And then in the next scene, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to my office. And if you need me for anything, you can call me. Typical man. <laughs> so he sits down at his desk, uh, which, by the way, it's in a room that I'm pretty sure is reused hundreds of times throughout this entire movie. Th- this movie has basically like five, five shooting uh, scenes, right? You have drive-in the bathroom at the drive-in and we'll just call that one but then once you get to the apartment complex there's like outside an apartment building a patio inside the patio and then like a nature trail and that is it <laughs> yeah and this patio has to have been reused so many times for various different apartments it is so strange to me but it's very clear that they made this man's office just like in that same room that they end up making all these different uh, apartments be. Does that make sense? Yeah, it looks like an apartment living room, but with a desk in the middle of it. Right, and his back is to the glass lighting door. Uh, so he's like drinking a beer and doing nothing. Listening to like Christian radio, I think. Yeah, and uh, Murder Twin just sneaks up behind him, gets his attention, and then chops off his beer holding hand with a machete and <laughs> when this hand hits the carpet it like crushes the can and starts moving around on its own because you know it's separate from the body now <laughs> that that's how you know that this film isn't going to be super fucking serious despite the fact that there are some uh, pretty gnarly plot points in there so at this point when he disappears and Louise begins to become progressively worried and worried and worried, like there's the there's these scenes where she's sitting on the floor in front of the refrigerator, just eating like cold green beans out of a big Tupperware container. And she says like, oh, I'm just going to clean the house. It'll help me feel better. And so we see lots of scenes of her cleaning with like a glass of wine. And um, I think she drinks like a whole bottle of wine. Uh, but eventually she pours and in like half a bottle into a single glass. And then there's a point where she's drinking wine out of something that's not even a glass or a bottle. I can't remember exactly what it was. But she eventually ends up in a, in a prolonged argument with the telephone operator trying to tell her that she just needs to dial her boyfriend because he's waiting for her call and there must be some problem because the phone just keeps ringing. Do you think that her performance here was supposed to be comedic or is it supposed to be dramatic? I want to say comedic. But it's difficult to tell that maybe this is one of the parts of the film that they wanted you to take seriously. Like they wanted you to take this woman's presumably real life hysteria seriously. I think that everybody was in on the joke except Louise Lasser. That, that's all I can think of is that this is her just being herself. 
And everybody else was like, just let her go. Let her be wacky. Like it, it's, I mean, to, to go to the Woody Allen connection, it's almost like, yeah, Woody Allen's neuroses in his movies are funny, but I think that's just him. Like he, he's just writing himself, right? Very neurotic. So I think this is Louise Lasser. But I also think it's hysterically funny. Don't get me wrong. Like, this is what I love the movie for. Those scenes of her sitting on the floor eating the cold green beans and, and drinking the wine while vacuuming. Uh, it's she I just the oven at one point. She's <laughs> vacuuming while this just this glass of wine is like has like fucking tsunamis in it as it's rocking back and forth. And I'm like, Oh God, the carpet, the carpet that, that I don't care about. You can't have that happen. No, it would just give her something else to clean. Oh, you can't clean wine out of carpet. That shit's impossible. As someone with OCD, I totally understand this urge to like, you've got to sometimes create chaos in order to solve problems. But let's go back to the psychiatrist. So she gets killed by a machete through the middle off camera and it was it's so surprising because again they set this character up like she was gonna probably be the hero or at the very least have the highest chance of trying to stop this guy and then we're just one cut away away from her being cut away from the rest of her body what do you think of the scene itself i think it looks pretty fucking awesome yeah it looks awesome i i don't think they would have been able to do a version of him cutting her in the act but they do a really good job of like hiding her la like her her actual like bottom half inside like the florida dirt yeah it's clear that's what they're doing right like they've got the b bottom half of her under the ground and the top half is flopping around but the makeup and everything is really cool oh yeah no the gore effects in this movie are great for the time i suppose they're not like super realistic but it doesn't have to be it's still very effective for what they want to pull off, which is brutal. It's all brutal. But afterwards, we get the repeated reference by Terry, who is licking blood off his shirt, that it's not cranberry sauce. Is this the most annoying repeated joke in a movie? Uh, it wasn't that bad. I don't know. It's just, I didn't think it was like very funny or interesting the first time and then they do it like five more times i don't know i wasn't a fan of it but i know other people are i know it's like the catchphrase for this movie or whatever they gotta remind you it's thanksgiving uh is that it probably i mean the only signs that you know it's thanksgiving is uh the thanksgiving dinner in the beginning him constantly talking about blood not being cranberry sauce and then there's like an apartment door that has corn hanging on it <laughs> and there you go thanksgiving well we there's one character we haven't discussed at all which is terry's girlfriend can we play the scene where she meets todd but she thinks he's terry it's one of the many on the back porch yes <laughs> come on where are you terry Gosh, Terry, you scared me to death. Oh, I thought you were hiding from me. Oh. So, um, 
listen, we didn't get much of a chance to talk at dinner and Mom, you wanna talk? Hey, you're high, aren't you? <laughs> you always get real quiet when you're high. Harry. Well look, um <clears throat> you know, we've both been away at school and I don't know, we haven't talked to each other, you haven't written me any letters, and I've hardly even seen you since you've gotten back. And, I don't know, Terry, I just love you a lot, and, well, I want you to make love to me. You're shocked, huh? <laughs> well, Terry, come on, I wish you'd say something. I'm not Terry. I'm Todd. Um, Terry's brother? Oh, my God. I mean, um, so you're home for the holidays, huh? You seem nice. I've never kissed a girl before. Oh, yeah? Well, um, you really ought to try it sometime. I gotta go. Bye. There's a lot of unnatural dialogue in this film, and I think that's a big part, a big piece of one. Uh, this and whenever the teenager or college kids get together for like extracurricular activity, it just feels really forced. Oh, entirely. I mean, like it might be together, like they get together to play football and tennis and, and all this other miscellaneous biz ed bullshit. And it just feels really awkward. They're clearly older than the characters they're supposed to be playing. I think that's part of it. Yeah, we're no strangers to that. We're used to it. But yeah, I think she's really... She's like a non-character. She's really boring. She is, which is, again, why I think it's amazing that she was the character that survived. Like, it's not even the actress. Just the character is boring. But you heard the the music during that scene, which is... it. I really like it, but it's it's kind of like trying to be the Halloween music, right? It's very, like... It's very somber and suspenseful, which doesn't really match the tone of the dialogue, right? I think that contributes to it being weird. Well, do you think this was a movie that was scored after it was filmed? Like, you know, they had the the the, the conductor in front of the orchestra with the giant screen, and you, you can actually, you know, conduct the music to the dialogue? No way. Uh, all this music was probably made, like, at the same time filming was being done, and he had no idea what any of this shit would look like. That's probably true. So we this is the setup now. We've got the the girlfriend, Terry's girlfriend, who is looking for him, and eventually she runs into like some more of their friends. And then Terry is with this other girl, although he doesn't seem to be remotely interested in her, so I don't know why. And then there's um Louise back in the apartment. And I really like when she like Terry is going to go out to find Todd and she tells Terry, please be careful. He's probably terrified. Why don't we, can we just play this scene? Should we call the police? No. I'm Brad. He's probably out looking. I'll stay here in case Todd comes home. But Terry, be very careful. He's probably very frightened. And Terry, please put on a sweater. It's cold outside. 
the blue one. See, yeah, these are the kind of neuroses I'm talking about. Like, I don't know. I just, they're very charming to me and funny, but also pitiful and disturbing. I, I will probably admit that perhaps the mother's performance, you know what? I'm just going to call it her nuanced performance possibly uh, flew under my radar, Re, you know, going back and rewatching clips of this. But it definitely isn't what I focused on first watching this movie. You know, in your defense, like, so I first saw this movie back when I was a teenager. I found the VHS at a video store, and I don't remember thinking that much of it. I remember just thinking, like, oh, this is another, like, kind of shitty slasher movie. But then when I saw it again, like, later in life, the Louise Lasser's performance is what really struck me. And, like, that's what makes me keep coming back to it and and watching it every year. Like, yeah, I think this movie is really funny and I understand why it's become become a cult classic and why people obsess over it. I get all that, but that's not like there are tons of movies I think that way about, like that are weird and silly and funny and gory. And there's something different here that is mostly, I think, her. And that's what keeps bringing me back. I certainly feel that there is more to this film than Louise, but it, it helps. It helps make this film just a, even if it's just a little bit more distinctive. Are any of the other characters even worth talking about? Like, what do you think of the teenage couples who are making out and playing video games and playing pranks on each other? They're all just excuses to raise the body count. It's not as obnoxious as other slasher films because we, you do get that payoff, right? Like that you do get like the action between all of this like monotonous, uh, you know, we keep saying teenagers, but like college kid interactions. So what did you think about the the one other couple then? There's a, there's a single mother with a baby who is trying to get the baby a rich daddy. And she's going, coming home from a date with this. I guess he's supposed to be an older guy, but he's kind of like a square, right? Like a 50-style square. Oh, what do you think of this couple? Like a six-figure square, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, it's not really any more bizarre than what Luis has going on with the property manager. It's like the same shit. It's like a motif. Single mothers trying to do what they feel is best for their children. Yeah. Financially, you know, make sure they're supported. What do you think of their death? You know, I honestly thought the baby was going to die. Like that was going to be a shock scene. I thought it, I think I thought it was the first time I saw this too. It, I'm still kind of surprised it made it. There are scenes in this film that definitely go too far. And I just thought that was going to be one of them. Yeah, but I like the thing where he hangs the boyfriend's head outside of the door so that when she looks through the peephole, it looks like he's standing there. I thought that was fun. How did he have time to do all this? <laughs> I didn't say it was believable, just that it was fun. Yeah, I mean, that's how you can describe almost all of the, the scenes in this film, like all the, the murder scenes, like impractical, but fun. And so I... I've seen this movie many times, but I put on the YouTube version yesterday because I didn't realize it was edited. And so I just let it play. And I, like this scene is not in it, 
there's pretty much none of the death scenes are in it, which means the movie really doesn't make any sense. Like the whole chase in the pool scene, none of that is in it. So it's very confusing. I don't know how anyone thought that would work. It's probably just some producer trying to save scrounge some manner of like profit. Like maybe it was meant for theaters. It didn't come out in theaters. Producer goes back and makes a TV edit, you know, sells it just to get something to recoup some of the cost. Yeah. All speculation. Well, we really haven't talked about what I think the greatest tragedy of the plot is. And that's that every time Todd is interacting with his mother, she assumes that he's Terry and refuses to acknowledge him at all. Like there's a scene where she collapses in the hallway because she's drunk and she's like calling out for Terry and Todd finds her and carries her to bed and he doesn't correct her. He doesn't say like, oh, I'm actually Todd. And then she asks for a kiss on the lips I feel like this would be such a disturbing, odd interaction with your mother who you've never seen as an adult in a natural setting, right? The only way he's ever seen his mother is in visits to the insane asylum. And this is like his introduction to her. I feel like that's really tragic. But hey, he got to kiss a girl. <laughs> Did this come like, was this funny to you or was it disturbing? The only thing that kind of disturbed me, like really caught me off guard was the very end. I didn't expect that. Yeah. You want to go ahead and talk about it since it fits here? I suppose. I mean, what else is there to really talk about? Right. Because all of the interactions between the teenagers, is just super mundane. And there's only so much we can talk about, like, people getting stabbed in the neck with necks and limbs with barbecue forks, right? I do want to mention that there's a little girl who won't let the girlfriend in the house and screams, you're going to hurt my kitty. And I, <laughs> I really like her. But I also think we should talk about what is up with Terry and sex. I think what? it's pretty obvious. Like he associates sex with his mother with his mother's neglect. Like, cause if his mom is trying to secure a man, she can't pay attention to them. And like, look, it's, we can assume that this is probably a school night and she's got her kids sleeping in the back of a car at a drive-in movie theater. Yeah. I can't imagine they had a great childhood growing up. No, that's true. I don't know. I I just I find it interesting. So do you think he's he never has slept with his girlfriend? Uh, yeah, they definitely have not. Because so, think about that conversation with Todd. Right. She's like, you know, I've decided, you know, we need to sleep together. Well, I didn't necessarily take that as they had never slept together before. But um, it sounds like to me like she wants to consummate something because she feels so strongly for him. And this was a big thing in movies in the 80s, giving up your virginity. I don't understand what she feels strongly about. <laughs> he really has no personality that he exhibits at all. He's tall, white, and athletic enough to murder like 12 other people in a night. He has a very dry sense of humor. Yes, very dry. Another thing that I want 
I definitely want to play the scene where Louise is on the phone breaking down with the operator. That number is in working order? Oh, no, 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 that's impossible. It's impossible. You must have dialed the wrong number. No, he's definitely there. Could you please just recheck that number for me? Because this is a real emergency. Why not? Look. Look, look. Look. You don't seem to understand. This is a real emergency. This is a real emergency. I mean, he is definitely there. He is waiting for my call right now. He is sitting there and waiting for my call. This is very important. Operator, I am begging you. This is a real, real emergency. What's the matter with you? Do you think her her performance there is realistic or is it ridiculous? Um, that's probably the most realistic acting in the film. I agree. I just don't know that the movie treats it realistically. You know, I said probably like it is like 100 percent is there's there's no contest. But for some reason, I didn't feel like it was out of place, probably because all of the trauma that she goes through seems very real and not as cartoonish as what happens to everyone else who are getting killed with cooking utensils and machetes and um, all sorts of other what did he, what did he tie that guy's head up with when he hung it from the stairs? It was a piece of electronics, right? Yeah, it was some kind of cord. Was it like a television or something? Maybe. Yeah, he uses all sorts of things around the apartment complex to kill people. But I it, I really like how you described it. It is like a cartoon, right? And the only person who's not a cartoon is Louise Lasser, but she went in the opposite direction and is like just a little bit too melodramatic, a little bit too over the top. And so you've got it kind of like uh, she's kind of like an alien dropped into this movie. You know, she drinks so much. That's probably why Murder Twin doesn't drink. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That's exactly the kind of thing that a good movie would, <laughs> you know, tease out a little more so that we understood it was part of the character. But no. So let's talk about the ending then. The ending at the pool. You were shocked by this. Right. Uh, at this point, the entire cast is basically dead. They, <laughs> What is his girlfriend's name? Susan? Oh, yeah. We haven't even used her name. <laughs> That's how little she matters. Uh, so Susan, which is hopefully her name, has been running around this Floridian apartment complex for about 10 minutes at this point, evading terry's pursuit part of it is just like a world tour of finding all of his victims from throughout the entire movie and uh at one point she picks up the uh earlier mentioned infant this ultimately ends in a i'm guessing a clubhouse where there is a indoor swimming pool and before terry has the chance to finish her off he is interrupted by Todd, who then struggle. What, just supremacy? They're just fighting it out? And we should add that in an earlier scene, Todd confronted Terry with a gun, but then he ran away. 
Oh, yeah. But then it didn't matter yeah. because at some point, Susan takes the gun from Todd and pulls the yep. trigger, and it's not even loaded. Nope. So, way to go, Todd. Anyway, so he had one chance to really confront Terry, but he ran away. So this is his second opportunity. And he fucks it up, almost drowns. Terry wins, climbs out of the pool just in time to see his mother come into the clubhouse with a gun that actually has ammo. Prior to this, she found a bloody t-shirt inside the kitchen inside her kitchen trash can which by the way had no bag in it <laughs> nope. there are so many small things to like really trigger your ocd in this film who uses a trash can without a trash bag see it it doesn't bother my ocd at all if someone else is doing it it's only if it's my trash can like if it's someone else's trash can do whatever you want <laughs> but i can't handle my own trash can being messed up anyway Use a use a trash bag. A anyway, sh I am not quite sure what sets her off before this point. Like she does find Brad eventually. She finds the bloody T-shirt in the trash can. Right. I don't think she believes that Terry is dead or hurt. Right. No, I think she thinks that she's found evidence that somebody has killed Brad. But do you think that when she shoots Terry that she knows it's Terry or does she think it's Todd? She doesn't know it's Terry. She thinks it's Todd because he's the he's the twin that's holding the machete. So clearly he is the murderer. And in this case, he is. And uh, the mom pulls the trigger and kills her favorite son. He lurches forward. It's actually a really well done shot because his back is to the camera. And he gets shot, and you actually see blood fall from the front of him into the pool. No, it's definitely do well done, but bear with me, because I'm not, I'm really torn about this. I think that your interpretation might be right. I also think there's a possibility that she knows it's Terry. She shoots him, knowing it's Terry, but that it has to be done. But afterwards, she goes into such a state of denial that her only response is to just pretend that Todd is actually Terry, that it was really the other way around. I think I'm leaning towards that. That's what I, I think. Regardless of how you want to interpret Louise's uh, mental breakdown, this is probably the weirdest scene in the entire film because you have what you got a corpse bleeding out in the pool. Meanwhile, you have an adult woman holding another a dead person's child in the background. And then a mother and adult son huddling together on the floor of an next to an indoor pool that just start shouting in unison, I'm Todd. <laughs> well, back up, because before that, Louise is telling Todd, we only need to be with each other. Only us. She says, Todd is gone. And then she says, you're such a good boy. You're the bestest. The bestest. It's a very, very borderline sexual, definitely obsessive, weird. So that's where the weirdness starts. But when, yeah, when he insists he's Todd, 
then they both start screaming i'm todd and, and then i didn't see this coming at all mom just holds the revolver to her head and pulls the trigger see that that is further evidence to me that she knew she had killed terry and she wanted to believe this fantasy but todd's not letting her todd's like breaking her out of the fantasy maybe so this scene this is an important thing to talk about because this scene is all it hinges on tone right like imagine david lynch had directed this scene (laughs) it would be it would have like fuzzy white noise in the background it would be cast from weird angles and with lots of shadow it would probably have a little person somewhere like but it would be effective right like it would be disturbing but i don't think this scene is disturbing in this movie I think it comes off as weird and but in and melodramatic, but not actually effective. I wouldn't say I took it seriously, but it was still a little shocking. All right. That's fair. I mean, come on, you have you've been following this distraught mom who's had nothing but tr- but but horrible things happen to her, and then she comes to the conclusion that she has done the worst possible thing that she ever could have imagined and takes her own life in front of her other adult son, despite him being there. Right. And I, this guy was already pretty messed up. It, it, it's going to only get worse from here. So because I, I mentioned David Lynch, I have to give a shout out to this Instagram page I've recently discovered. And I think this, this is brilliant in how well it works, but the the page is called sign peaks and basically he shows scenes from seinfeld with uh the angelo battlemente score from twin peaks over top of it and then in other cases he plays scenes from twin peaks with seinfeld music over top of it and the change in music does so much to alter the tone it's it's brilliant it's it's <laughs> like this for coming up with this i give this guy props so people should check that out sign peaks anyway you want to give final thoughts and a rating out of four this movie just ends with susan running off with another woman's child and then the police finally show up finally finally just in time probably to find todd covered in his mother's blood in the middle of a a giant crime scene. So Todd goes back to the insane asylum, right? Uh, I would assume that, or maybe the police just shoot him. Who knows? Yeah. It's the eighties. Well, that still happens now, but you know, as a first watch, maybe I didn't quite focus on the mother enough, but I think this is a extremely effective slasher film where you have, the appropriate amount of gore, the appropriate amount of action, uh, you know, I guess the appropriate amount of nudity and, and exploitation in general. But it, it, there's a lot here to digest where even if you're not just here for your usual slasher fare, you can can really dive deep on some of these characters, really look into it. Um, the the only real loose end here is the 
psychologist who is taken out so early in the script, despite having her kind of be set up to be um, what was probably going to be the original protagonist. Um, but it, it certainly doesn't dull the film at all. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It does take place during Thanksgiving, but I don't really think that's a big deal. <laughs> it's, you know, for a Thanksgiving horror film, right? There's always the temptation to write a script that involves way too much turkey, right? And, yeah, I get you. <laughs> yeah, and you know, this film, who who wrote this shit? Who Who is the writer? It's written by Bruce Rubin. Bruce Rubin. This hero had the courage to write a Thanksgiving horror film script that did not involve murderous giant turkeys or turkey men monsters. We need to give props for that. You know, most of the characters are not memorable. The acting is very questionable throughout the film, but you're not here for that. And, and really, if you were here for that, I think Louise has you on lockdown. She she's got enough she's got enough presence to make up for everyone else in the film acting like uh just cardboard cutouts to be murdered later. It's it's really the strange plot points too that I think elevate this film to probably a slightly higher level than your average slasher film, but you know, like I said, it's not really needed to appreciate it. I, I think this is like a, a good solid three-star film. I don't view this movie the same way. If I were watching it as a, a horror movie, as a slasher, then I think it fails on almost every level except gore. Right? Like the gore is cool. But uh, it, which is how I feel about Sleepaway Camp, right? It, I had never thought about that comparison before, but now talking about it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I think Sleepaway Camp is a terrible movie, but it is terrible in such a strange way, and it focuses on the oddest things and its performances and its dialogue and its plot twists are just out of it. It's like it's like an exploitation filmmaker and a comedy screenwriter got together and like they each were trying to put their they collaborated on a script right that's how it feels and and so it's it's very odd to me i don't think it's a successful movie but is it so weird is it so strange that it crosses the boundary of bad and enters some other territory Right. Like, I don't think it's self-aware. I don't think it's trying to be ironic, although maybe it's trying to be humorous. I think maybe this is a joke at Louise Lasser's expense, but I'm not sure. But regardless, she's the most interesting part of this movie to me. I love her performance. I don't know how intentional it was, but I love it. Um, I love her character. I find her hugely fascinating the the twins are fine right i think he does a pretty good job of playing two different characters and uh and i'm willing to go along with them even though they don't have that much personality nor does anyone except louise lasser in this movie um but i think it's worth i think the the phone conversations between her and the operator are worth the price of admission alone 
as are any number of other scenes. So um, I'm going to give this three stars too, but, and not for the same reasons as Leland. I, I just think this movie is such a bizarre oddity that I don't think could be recreated. Like, I don't think you could recreate this magic and it just happens to exist as this weirdo piece of film. But I'm thankful it does. All right. So next week, we are going to start getting into the Christmas spirit with that uh, paragon of Christmas cheer, uh, Christmas Evil from 1980. So if you haven't seen that, check it out. Um, it's available on YouTube. It's on Tubi. Uh, if you're lucky, you have a VHS copy. And uh, I think it's out on Blu-ray and DVD and all of that. So if you've somehow missed Christmas Evil, watch it for next week and join us. Uh, until then, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything we do. Leland, any last words? Thank you for your continued support. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one, everybody.